Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Your Excellency, if you would please lead us in prayer. Sure. If you could all please stand. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can be gathered in your name, for you have told us where two or three are present, there you are in their midst. We ask you to deepen our awareness of your presence, not only here, but in our lives. Let us truly be committed to proclaiming the truth, for you are the truth, and you teach us truth. And in that truth, all are set free. Help us then, Lord, to respond to every invitation of grace you give us. Bless not only our gathering here, but bless all our endeavors, particularly as we prepare to enter into the year of faith. Bless, too, the intentions of our hearts and the needs both of the universal church and the diocesan churches we represent. And together now, Lord, hear us as we offer to you the prayer you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Bishop Laverde. Our speaker this evening, Bishop Paul Laverde, was ordained a priest for service in the Diocese of Norwich on December 18, 1965, in the Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. He served in a variety of assignments, both in the parochial and diocesan levels. In 1988, he was ordained an auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of Hartford. Bishop Laverde was installed as the 11th bishop of Ogdensburg, New York, in 1994 and became the third bishop of Arlington in 1999. He served as chairman of the Bishop's Committee on Vocations from 1995 to 1998 and was a member of the Bishop's Administrative Committee from 2004 to 2008. In addition to being the chair of the Board of Trustees of Catholic Distance University and Catholic University of America, Bishop Laverde is a member of the Board of Directors of the Institute for Psychological Studies and of the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. St. Ignatius tells us, beautifully, a disciple, by the way, of St. John the Beloved, who leaned on the breast of our Lord, that wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude be gathered. Even as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. We are blessed this evening at the Institute of Catholic Culture, to have our local shepherd with us. For where the bishop is, there is the fullness of the Catholic Church. Please join me in welcoming Bishop Paul Laverde.
Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. First of all, before I begin my, uh, my presentation, I want to say a word of gratitude to our deacon, Sabatino Cognapso, for his gracious invitation for me to come and be with you tonight. I'm deeply grateful for his kindness and for the enthusiasm he brings uh, to this endeavor. I mean, one can't be with him more than three minutes that one does not know of his deep, enthusiastic faith. So, Deacon, many, many thanks, and to also the Board of Directors and all your benefactors who enable this apostolic work to continue. God bless you. Thank you. Yes, give them a good word. That's good. That's great. And dear brothers and sisters, I'm also very grateful to you for your presence this evening. After all, um, a number of you have to come some distance. And here you are. So many, many thanks. And I, I pray God that uh, the reflection I share with you will be of help not only to you personally, but in your efforts to be the instruments of God in proclaiming the truth and evangelizing our sisters and brothers, particularly those who have no longer practiced the precious Catholic faith. Permit me to begin by quoting the sage counsel of the veteran St. Paul to his co-worker and friend, the young St. Timothy. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul reminds him, but if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Paul is clearly pointing to Timothy's solemn duty to preserve sound Christian doctrine in the church of Ephesus and making clear that the household of God is truly the church and the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. In these times of radical relativism and subjectivity, where the mindset or attitude of so many people in our society, and yet sadly within the household of God, is that each person is the architect and framer of what is true, the church, which Jesus Christ founded, which subsists fully within the Catholic Church, remains the one pillar and foundation of the truth. Even some who leave the church because they prefer the pick-and-choose approach to what is believed, accepted, and practiced, even some of them admit that the Catholic Church is the best and the last hope for sanity and truth in our society. 
I actually was told that by a person who clearly was leaving the church because of doctrinal issues, yet stated that the church remains society's last hope. As an aside, I tried to engage that person with the contradictory nature of his decision versus his statement, but to no avail. The church is unabashedly the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is then why all of us, beginning with the bishops, must proclaim clearly and consistently in every way possible the truth, who is Christ. The truth, which he gives us in the sacred scriptures and through the living tradition of his church, and which comes to us from the magisterium, the official teaching office of the church. This brings me to the second sage council by the veteran St. Paul to the young St. Timothy, this time in his second letter to Timothy. Proclaim the word. Be persistent, whether it is convenient or inconvenient. Convince, reprimand, encourage through all patience and teaching. Yes, all of us, but especially we bishops, in union with the Vicar of Christ, our Holy Father, have the solemn responsibility to proclaim the word of truth in season and out of season, whether convenient or not, with patience so as to encourage God's people to understand the truth, to live the truth, to pass on the truth. In fact, that was the motivation behind my choice of an Episcopal motto, which, as you know, is encourage and teach with patience. And this is all the more vital and necessary in these times because we are indeed experiencing a moral crisis. Signs of this crisis are evident everywhere. In the media, where partisan views are stated as the truth and spins with clever sound bites become seemingly very persuasive to far too many. In our neighborhoods, where half-truths and false interpretations are expressed without the slightest hesitation. In our own families, where members can be divided sadly over the most basic issues, like the inestimable dignity of every human person 
and the corresponding right to life from conception to natural death. Or the fundamental meaning of marriage from both the natural law and God's revelation. Or the related understanding of family, where father is male and mother is female. And children are seen as the fruit of conjugal love, which is always open to life, even as it also strives to be permanent and faithful. And the list of issues goes on. A last example of this moral crisis, even in our lives, where sometimes we reject the good and do the evil. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn observed, and I quote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The signs of the modern moral crisis are among us, around us, and beyond us. Yes, they are obvious to those among us who seek to be faithful to the transforming power of God's grace. However, it is beneficial to consider the root causes of this moral crisis in order to move beyond an understandable moral indignation toward efforts to remove this deepening crisis in our midst. Let me be clear, I do not intend to be exhaustive in this reflection. The goal is to evoke reflection and discussion, which can then lead, please God, to continued prayerful intercession, continuing formation in the faith, and sustained witness in the public square. We speak of a moral crisis. So what is this simple definition of moral? To be moral is to act rightly to do good and avoid evil, to treat others as we want others to treat us. This basic understanding of what it means to act rightly is rooted in the natural law because the rules of right conduct are written into human nature and is the whole of creation by the creator himself. The Catechism of the Catholic Church instructs us so well on this issue. For further reflection of the moral law, I recommend part three, Life in Christ, chapter three, God's Salvation, Law and Grace, Article 1, The Moral Law. So then, the rules of right action are written into human nature, can be known by natural reason, and thus will lead to human thriving. In other words, 
to act rightly, to act morally, is to follow the law which God wrote into our human nature. One can consider the natural moral law as a type of built-in instruction manual for the human person. In order to do the good and to avoid evil, in order to act rightly, tremendous benefit is afforded the human person who practices virtue. So, what is virtue? The Catechism gives us this definition in number 1803. A virtue is an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It allows the person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends toward the good with all his sensory and spiritual powers. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete actions. The goal of a virtuous life is to become like God. The goal of a virtuous life is to become like God. For a fuller exploration of the virtues, once again, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is beneficial. Without further consideration here of the role of virtues, and such consideration should become more and more a part of moral formation, we conclude that these habits and capacities to act rightly are formed in human beings by instruction and repeated acts of doing what is right. Obviously, the opposite of virtue is vice, a habit of evil, self-destructive action. Moreover, we cannot forget that the context for our acting rightly and responding to the dictates of the natural moral law and also of divine revelation, that context is the human person who possesses the fallen state of human nature. When our first parents broke their relationship with God through that first or original sin, not only was their relationship with God sundered, but this catastrophic event fractured the whole of creation and our human nature. As a consequence, our human nature is wounded but not totally corrupted or destroyed. It is good, but much weakened in the capacity to perceive and to do good. Please note that I am speaking here about the natural good, 
not the good that comes from God's grace in us and allows us to tend toward God's promise to us of eternal life in heaven. The effects flowing from that original sin are evident in the darkening of the intellect, the weakening of the will, and the confusion or disordering of our emotions and appetites, our passions. One word summarizes all this. Concupiscence. Ah, what does that mean? I turn again to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Human appetites or desires which remain disordered due to the temporal consequences of original sin, which remain even after baptism, and which produce an inclination to sin. That is concupiscence. Obviously, this presents a certain difficulty in not only following the moral law, but even knowing it as fully as one should. St. Paul himself refers to this difficulty in his letter to the Romans, and I quote him, What I do, I do not understand, for I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate. And then a few sentences later, For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. While this fallen state in our human nature makes it more difficult to follow the moral law, to act rightly, it is not impossible for us to do so. God, in his loving care for us, wounded human beings, aids us by his revelation, which tells us what is moral. For example, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, and gives us freely the grace to grow in virtue and to do what is right and good. Again, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is so instructive. Permit me to share with you two citations, numbers 1810-1810 and number 1811. The first, human virtues acquired by education, by deliberate acts, and by a perseverance ever renewed in repeated efforts are purified and elevated by divine grace. With God's help, they forge character and give facility in the practice of the good. The virtuous man is happy to practice them. The second citation. It is not easy for man, wounded by sin, to maintain moral balance. Christ's gift of salvation offers us the grace necessary to persevere in the pursuit of virtues. Everyone should always ask for this grace of light and strength, frequent the sacraments, cooperate with the Holy Spirit, 
and follow his calls to love what is good and shun evil. The human virtues are rooted in the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. At the conclusion to these considerations regarding our fallen human nature and our observance of the law, a moral law, I ask you to reflect on another paragraph of the Catechism, number 1828. You can tell I really like it. That's why I'm quoting it. The practice of the moral life animated by charity gives to the Christian the spiritual freedom of the children of God. Man no longer stands before God as a slave in servile fear or as a mercenary looking for wages, but as a son responding to the love of him who first loved us. If it is a perennial difficulty to act rightly, a difficulty with which we shall always struggle, in our own times there are other circumstances which compound the woundedness and weakness stemming from that original sin, thereby increasing the difficulties we actually experience in knowing and following the moral law. I point to the distrust of reason and relativism. There abounds in society a radical skepticism that doubts the human capacity to know things that are timeless and universal, that thereby express truth. Blessed Pope John Paul II spoke to this contemporary doubt regarding the human capacity to know things that are timeless and universal in Fides et Ratio. I quote him. In my encyclical letter, Veritatis Splendor, I drew attention to certain fundamental truths of Catholic doctrine, which, in the present circumstances, risk being distorted or denied. In the present letter, Fides et Ratio, I wish to pursue that reflection by concentrating on the theme of truth itself and on its foundation in relation to faith. For it is undeniable that this time of rapid and complex change can leave especially the younger generation to whom the future belongs and on whom it depends, leave them with a sense that they have no valid points of reference. End of quote. This radical skepticism leads to a relativistic ethos in which there are no moral absolutes and every individual determines what is right and wrong. 
Do we not see this so clearly expressed in the attempt to redefine the meaning of marriage and the confused understanding of human sexuality itself? When I was growing up in the late 1940s and 1950s, never did I dream that one day we would have to define what marriage means. The union of one man with one woman, only that. The sexual revolution was occurring as I was completing my seminary formation into the years of my early priestly ministry. The massive and painful consequences to individuals and to society are evident objectively, but sadly are subjectively dismissed and even more so denied. All of us see the widespread and prevailing hurt to individuals and to our society. I especially see this as a bishop, the shepherd of souls. What results is the disintegration of relationships and a poverty of love in its authentic meaning. Love means the seeking of the total well-being of the other, including his or her eternal salvation. All around us, and yes, among us, we encounter broken families and fatherless children. People have promised commitment to each other as husband and wife, as parents and children, fail to love responsibly, but to express that love adequately. This is especially true of fathers in our society. Due to the schedule of working parents and or to the demands for academic or athletic excellence, often enforced on children whose intellectual and even more emotional age is not appropriate to this demand, children have less time with their parents and vice versa. Families are unnecessarily smaller than they should be owing to the criteria society imposes for happiness or success or even providing the necessities of life. Thus, there is a diminishment of the loving care that would be experienced beyond material goods and a false understanding of what children really need to grow in wholeness and to learn how to live. They need authentic love, marked by self-giving that is joyous and not more clothing, gadgets, money. This relativistic ethos can lead to a radical individualism, again to the great peril for both the individual and society. People often sense that this isolation, born out of radical individualism, is harmful. So they seek to break away and to heal the wounds that cause them to be so unfulfilled. Sadly, many people 
often attempt to alleviate this painful situation in ways that harm, not help, that deepen pain, not lessen it. Among these so-called solutions are promiscuity, indulging same-sex attractions, materialism, workaholic behavior, substance abuse, increase in alcoholism, and the substitution of real relationships with relationships in the cyber world, which further isolate people while give them the illusion of being connected. All of these realities translate in the public square to an alarming erosion of the affirmation of right and wrong in civil discourse and in the formulations of laws and policies. As clear and evident examples, I point to the increasing support for same-sex marriage and the HHS mandate. If I were to conclude here, we would be understandably gloomy, perhaps even depressed. <laughs> However, the disciples of the Lord Jesus and members of his body, the church, has disciples and members. We are a people of hope. The Lord Jesus is the source of enduring hope. And his truth will prevail, as well as the church he founded, the pillar and foundation of truth. So we press on to a response that is rooted in Christ Jesus, his word, and his church. Yet realistic and workable. Did not Pope Benedict XVI make the theme Christ our hope, the underlying reality of his visit to us in 2008. Did not remind us of the reason for hope in the encyclical letter, Spe Salvi. Permit me to propose some ingredients, ingredients as it were, for a realistic recipe that would help us to address the issues we have discussed and move forward to a future filled with hope. I propose for our reflection three such aspects or ingredients. One, intellectual engagement. Two, evangelization through friendship and witness. And three, prayer and penance. First, intellectual engagement. Obviously, this is an essential aspect because we must understand the truth in its fullness and integrity in order to demonstrate its reasonability. In doing so, we are equipped to propose the truth with a confidence that strengthens honest dialogue. Certainly many among us are endeavoring to foster this intellectual engagement from popes to the bloggers 
Catholics are engaging the dominant culture in significant ways. Without a doubt, much more dialogue is needed. Yes, individually and personally, the one-on-one -on -one approach, but also through seminars and regular gatherings for education and formation, such as the Institute of Catholic Culture. Moreover, using the social media in order to reach people quickly and to engage wider audiences is yet another way to engage people in the pursuit of truth. As we enter into dialogue, we must be sure that how we interact enables what we are proposing to be received clearly. Our attitude and approach should result in these internal questions. What is the person really saying and why? To be empathetic is not to agree, but it is the sign of heart listening to heart. I am convinced that our intellectual engagement must propose what the church teaches and why she teaches what she teaches. As I said, meaning the person where he or she is at, listening to what they understand and why they do, and then gradually leading them from one stage to another all this is not at all compromising the truth. The paradigm for this kind of approach is given by Jesus himself in his encounter and dialogue with the woman at the well. This event is recorded in chapter 4 of the Gospel according to St. John. As we have seen, Pomenc the 16th engages people so beautifully in this way. We must be clear and firm in what we propose, yet respectful and kindly in our demeanor. We can do this because of our own confidence in the truth and of our realization that so many people possess a deep, yet often confused desire for the truth. Secondly, Evangelization through friendship and witness. Most of us has had the experience of proposing a reasonable and logical explanation of a moral position without any positive effect in the listener. Often this lack of effect results not because the listener was able to refute what we said, but because he or she either did not grasp the reasonable truth or refused to do so. An example of this is abortion. With the advanced technology, it is possible to view the child in the womb at a very early stage in its life development. It is a human being we see, not just tissue. 
how can one allow the life of this innocent, defenseless person to be taken away unjustly? I remain baffled that what is so evident continues to be ignored and denied. This leads us to propose that the moral crisis we are facing today is not due only to intellectual failure to perceive what is right. In many cases, the relativistic ideology is a screen covering over deep disorders and emotional poverty. Therefore, in addition to clear and cogent appeals to the truth, Another essential aspect in resolving the moral crisis involves evangelization through friendship and witness. How does this sort of evangelization take place? First, we must form authentic relationships. People who may be in error are often subconsciously seeking the truth. Engaging them in the issues should not come first. Rather, reaching out to them with genuine interest in them as persons is primary. Their family, their interests, their work, their hopes. What results is a bond of understanding and empathy, an acceptance of them as persons even if we disagree with them. Once this relationship is established, ongoing dialogue can occur because there is the realization that who they are as persons is being respected, even if what they think or say is not acceptable. We must be vigilant. The relationship is genuine. That is, we are seeking the total good of the other, including an acceptance of what is the truth underlying any issues. Our reaching out it must not be seen then as merely a way to make the pitch for opposition. In developing and sustaining this relationship will also be key is our witness. In other words, not only do we propose the truth, but we actually live it in the daily circumstances of our life. This witness will be marked by an unmistakable inner peace and quiet joy, by a hope that endures no matter what, by the conviction the truth is ultimately a person whose name is Jesus Christ and with whom we have an authentic relationship through faith. Thirdly, and finally, of these ingredients or aspects, prayer and penance. This third, in a very real, the most necessary and needed aspect in resolving the moral crisis is prayer and penance. In prayer, we are transformed by the Holy Spirit to become more and more remade into the image and likeness of Christ. Faithful has adopted sons and daughters of the Father 
as loyal members of Christ's body, the church, in prayer, again, through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we come to perceive the truth more clearly and more fully, even when the truth proposes hard sayings. In prayer, initiated by and sustained through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we acquire the mind of Christ and see others through his eyes, love them with the love in his heart, and desire their total welfare, including their salvation, with the intensity of his will. Because of this union with the Lord in prayer, we will continue to intercede for them. We will never abandon those who do not accept the truth. We will leave the door open so that one day, through God's grace, they will walk through the door of faith. Penance is also needed. Penitential acts strengthen our resolve to respond to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. These same penitential acts can be the signs of our desire to make reparation as well for the times when we did not act rightly and or for the sinful actions that flow from denying the truth and refusing to live by its directives. In addition, these penitential acts can also be a kind of spiritual lever whereby people will be enabled to let God change their hearts. After all, in the end, it will not be commandments or precepts or laws that will solve the moral crisis and bring forth a new flowering of wholesome moral living. No, in the end, it will be a change of hearts, a radical transformation which only the Lord can bring about. He has the power to do so if and only if the human person gives the one thing needed even by God himself, the yes of obedient faith. We began considering the modern moral crisis, its causes and its context. Then we reflected on several ways by which as members of the church, the pillar and foundation of truth, we could be God's instruments in resolving this moral crisis so that there can yet flourish a new civilization of life and love reflecting strong moral living. We proposed three elements toward resolving that moral crisis. Intellectual engagement, evangelization through friendship and witness, and prayer and penance. Yes, we need to understand. We need to be formed and educated. We need to propose the truth, to persuade, and to witness. 
And added to all these, we need to pray and to do penance. This is the work we must be about. May God, who has begun this good work in us, bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.